Our Father, we who know you, sing those words that one day we will bow before you and we will sing how great you are. And our souls will be filled with joy and happiness and gratitude to a degree that we can barely fathom here. But how we long for that day. We long to bow before you in all of your glory and sing your praises with all of the saints and all of the redeemed and the angels gathered around your throne. Lord, help us to bow our hearts and our wills and our lives to you each day until that great day as we live here in this world and we learn to follow you, our Lord, as obedient sheep who have found rest from our burdens in your salvation and your grace, who have taken your yoke upon us that we might live for you and accomplish your will in our lives and in this world until you return. And strengthen us along that way, even as we look at your word, your sanctifying word, your saving word. May you accomplish both of those works by your spirit in us this morning. We pray these things in your matchless name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Open up your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, as we come back to the church of Thyatira, in verses 18 through 29, we begin our look at this church last week. And we'll look at it again this week and next week, and hopefully finish up next week. The Church of Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. Let me just briefly introduce the passage before we read it by acknowledging that the church, as we know, and all of Scripture testifies, and even our own lives, is constantly faced with temptations, is constantly faced with those things that would draw our attention and our gaze and our focus away from Christ. Those endless opportunities, it seems, to compromise and lessen the truth of God's Word in order to make things easier, to have a pragmatic or practical thinking attitude where we minimize the hard claims and the hard things in order to make our lives easier in this world. That's a temptation that has faced the God's people ever since the beginning. It's certainly faced the nation of Israel. It's faced the church since her inception nearly 2,000 years ago, and it does for us today and will until Christ returns. And so that is what we are confronted with in all of these churches to some degree, except for Smyrna and Philadelphia, each of which who do not have a rebuke given to them from the risen Lord, but each of the other churches do, five of the seven, and and while there are distinctions with each church, there is overlap as well. And the overlap could be summarized primarily in this, the call to faithfulness to Christ, the call to faithfulness to the truth, the call to faithfulness to His Word, rejecting the temptation and the pulls of this world and the lies of Satan from those without and even, as we'll see in Thyatira, those within the church. And so with that, let's read our passage and then we'll look at it more closely. Beginning in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds, and your love, and faith, and service, and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. 
Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. And he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of, potter, of the potter are broken to pieces. As I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Go back to verse 18. We noted last week in coming in to understand the message of the risen Christ to the church of Thyatira. We noted first what was the context of Thyatira as we do with each of these churches. And we noted that Thyatira is the least of all of the seven churches in terms of its significance as a city. In fact, it is a city that just began, was just in the early parts of its rise to any kind of significance or prominence. Not so much in a political sense, but in a social and economic sense. It was becoming a wealthy city. It began as a garrison city, a military outpost. It, uh, that went away with the rise of Rome. It was overtaken by Rome, and then the peace of Rome began to spread, and, and it went from a military town, essentially, to one of an economic boom. And, and part of what comprised the cities was a multitude of guilds, a multitude of trades, and, and they became wealthy because of the travel that used to go through this area because of its location, and that is the city of Thyatira. What was significant about these guilds, as we'll mention again later, is that very often, as a part of that ancient culture, these trade guilds were associated with idolatry, in particular idols, and particular gods that received worship from those who assigned themselves to it. And, and in order to do business and to have economic prosperity in that area, there was the temptation to participate in these evil practices. And so that is the situation of the church in Thyatira. And then Christ speaks to them, giving, as he does in each case again, his credentials. His credentials that connect with the original vision that he gave to John at the beginning of the Revelation. And credentials that are particularly associated with the message to that particular church. Here he is the Son of God, emphasizing his deity, his eternal relationship with the Father. He has eyes like flame of fire, emphasizing the piercing knowledge of his gaze that will rightly execute justice and judgment and uphold righteousness as he holds his people accountable for their works and their deeds. He is one whose feet is like burnished bronze, which speaks of his authority and his power, his kingly glory, that he will bring judgment and he will accomplish it, and none can stand in his deeds, in his ways. And then in verse 19, he gives them a commendation. And he says, out of this perfect knowledge, out of this perfect omniscience, he knows the deeds of this church. He is not ignorant of them. And, and we noted how that is an example to us. Here he has condemnation, but he makes sure to begin with noting the ways that they have displayed faithfulness. He says, I know your love and your faith and your service and your perseverance and your deeds are greater of late than they were at first. And there he sets a particular contrast with the church at Ephesus, who had began in love and yet had 
been emptied of that love and it turned into more of a legalism, more of an external obedience without the heart of tenderness towards the Lord. But that's not the case with Thyatira. They had begun in love and yet instead of that love diminishing and that work diminishing, it actually had increased among them. And Christ says, I know that, I see that, I see your works, I know that you're continuing to pursue me. But then he takes a switch as he again does with five of the seven churches. And number four, our fourth point, he begins with a confrontation of their sin. He says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. And again, as with the previous messages and the ones to come, the power of the rebuke comes in light of the, uh, with a strength because of the commendations that were just given by the risen Lord. The rebuke comes unexpectedly. It comes in a sense mysteriously. It's the last thing you would expect after hearing all of these positive things that Christ has said about the church. It comes as a surprise. It almost takes you off guard that he would have such a strong censure, such a strong word of rebuke to them and condemnation. But there it is. And we wonder, how could a congregation, and we ask this even about a person who seems so committed to Christ, yet harbor a sin that could bring such a strong word from the risen Christ? And yet it does. It does happen. And it happens when the church and when an individual fails to address sin and error. A church, when it fails to address sin in its midst, an individual, when it fails to deal with sin in their heart and lets these things harbor and fester and leaven the whole lump, as, Christ, or as Paul said to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5. It happens when Scripture no longer functions as the fully authoritative and sufficient source of the church's life. It happens when culture is given a platform in the church or an equal voice to God's people. And very often a voice that stands in opposition to the clear teaching of the Bible. Culture can be very seductive. Error can be very seductive and it often is. That's what gives it its power. That's what gives it its strength. And so it was in Thyatira. And so it has been a struggle throughout the ages and so it is today. And let's consider that briefly and this is what we'll spend our time on the rest of this morning, understanding the confrontation of sin. But first of all, a brief background. He says, I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. The woman Jezebel. And that is the issue, toleration. Toleration, compromise, not so much unlike Pergamum who was compromising as well. Here he tells him you're tolerating someone who should not be tolerated. You're tolerating someone who is a false prophet and who is leading the church astray, is causing some among the church to sin and dishonor Christ. Well, let's begin then by understanding who is Jezebel. Who is Jezebel? Well, most assuredly, as I'll note later again, this isn't the literal Jezebel. That's not her name. He is connecting her to an Old Testament figure, Jezebel in the Old Testament. And who was she? Well, just briefly to understand the comparison here. Jezebel was the evil wife of the evil king Ahab, who was king of Israel. Now understand that king of Israel, to say it at this point in the history of Israel, is referring to the northern tribes. If you remember, the, the tribes of Israel split. You had the southern tribe of Judah, and then you had the northern tribes that went up north and made their capital Samaria. And throughout the history of Israel and the northern tribes, they were all wicked kings. They were all evil kings. 
the southern tribes were mixed, some good kings, some bad kings. Ultimately, they were corrupt as well and, 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 and experienced the judgment of God. But Ahab was one of the wicked kings of the northern tribes of Israel, and he was particularly wicked. He was particularly known for his sin and the way that he led Israel into apostasy through the worship of false idols. Let's just briefly, we're going to just very briefly, but consider the context there. And then we'll attach it to the error that was allowed in the church at Thyatira. Now Ahab possibly, though he was an evil king, repented at some point in his life in 1 Kings chapter 21 when God confronted him with sin, whether that was repentance unto salvation, whether that was merely remorse over the judgment that God had announced upon him, well, God only knows. But he did have some measure of repentance, but the overall divine evaluation of his life is that he was an evil king. As a matter of fact... Scripture says this in verse 30 of 1 Kings 16. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of, Sidians, of the Sidians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. And such was the sin of Ahab and his evil wife, Jezebel. Now, while Ahab bears the consequence of his wickedness and his sin alone, Jezebel is repeatedly presented throughout the account of Ahab's life and his reign as an evil influence upon him, one who provoked him to do more evil than he would have otherwise. 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 25 says this, Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Listen, because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. So although Ahab had an evil heart on his own to which he was accountable, he did more evil deeds than he would have done otherwise. And it's important to note here, that while each of us is responsible for our own sin, no one makes us sin. When we sin, it arises out of our own heart and our own sinful desires for which we are completely accountable. Nonetheless, Scripture makes clear that the company we keep can either stir up sinful inclinations, stoke fleshly impulses, or hinder them and help us to walk on a path that is better than we would do on our own. The company that we keep plays an important role in our spiritual life. And so that's why it was doubly sinful for Ahab, who already had a heart that walked astray from the Lord, married a woman who would help him to go even further away than he would have on his own. Now, what role did she play in the life of Ahab and then therefore in the life of Israel? Well, let me just mention this. She swayed him to worship Baal. She failed, swayed him to worship false idols. It says again in 1 Kings chapter 16, 32, So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And he did so because of the evil influence of his wife Jezebel. She not only encouraged him to worship the false prophets, she herself killed the prophets of God and put them to death. In 1 Kings 18.4, Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. He was a faithful Israelite, 
But Obadiah knows that he was nervous when Ahab came to him because he acknowledges that Jezebel, his wife, had already put many of the prophets to God to death. And so he was concerned. As a matter of fact, she displays that same heart after Elijah stood against the prophets of Baal on the Mount Carmel that immediately after hearing of this, she pursued Ahab wanting to put him to death, or Elijah. It says in chapter 19, after the great conflict of Elijah with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, it says this, that Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. She hated the word of God. She hated the God of Israel. She hated the prophets of God. And she loved the false idolatrous worship of the nations. And she was the influence on the king of Israel. The culmination of her life comes in an account at the end of the reign of Ahab where she falsely accuses an innocent man. Some of you may remember the story. There was a man named Naboth who had a field next to Ahab's dwelling place and he wanted to buy the field and the guy Naboth said, no, we're not going to do that. And he was sullen and he went into his house and he was having a pity party and his wife Jezebel comes in asking why he's having a pity party and he tells her and she's like, are you not the king of Israel? In other words, can't you do whatever you want? And she says, don't worry about it, I'll take care of it. And then she goes out and she hires some worthless men, some evil men, and then she invites Naboth to this feast with others and these worthless men and make a false accusation saying that he cursed God and he cursed the king and they take him out and stone him and they kill him and essentially he's murdered and then Jezebel comes back to Ahab and says here now you can have the field that you always wanted now Ahab knows exactly that how this happened he knows that it was achieved through evil means and yet he accepted it anyway and God rebukes him and then declares the fate of Jezebel which is gruesome which is gruesome as a matter of fact it's given in 2nd Kings chapter 9 it says this Nearing the end of, or at the end of her life, there's a ruler who comes back having won a battle. He's on the side of the Lord, and he comes to where Jezebel is. She dresses herself up essentially as a harlot. It says she painted her eyes, adorned her head, and looked out the window. And Jehu, who was the, the, the victor of the Lord's army, entered the gate and said, Is it well with Zimri, your master's murderer? And then he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? And two or three of the officials looked down at him. And he said, Throw her down. And so they threw her, being Jezebel, down. And some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses. And he trampled her underfoot. And when he came in, he ate and drank. And he said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. And they went to bury her, but they found nothing more than her skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. And therefore they returned and told him and said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by the servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, In the property of Jezreel the dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the course of Jezebel will be as dung on the face of the field and the property of Jezebel, so they cannot say this is Jezebel. And such was the life of this Old Testament woman. She was from a pagan nation. She worshipped pagan gods. She influenced the king of Israel to pursue that same paganism and lead the people of God astray to do things they ought not to do, to worship idols. And so here is this teacher in Thyatira, also a woman. 
And he is, she has assigned the name Jezebel because she's displaying the same character of that Old Testament evil influence among the people of God. As Jezebel's influence led some in Israel to disregard God's word, to participate in idolatrous practices, so this prophet, false prophetess was influencing some to do the same in Thyatira. To, dis to have disregard for concern for the separation of the church, of the immorality of the culture around, and the idolatrous practices. And what's interesting about her is apparently she and her followers did claim to hold to some degree an orthodox faith or to some degree uh, the truth of the gospel. And so she was given credence among the church. And it says that she called herself a prophetess and a teacher. She called herself a prophetess and a teacher, and apparently some were okay with that identification. And she was allowed to continue with her teaching. She was allowed to continue to supposedly give a word from God, and in that false word from God, lead others astray. And they were tolerating her, and that was the issue. Now, there are two errors I want to note up front in that statement. First of all is this. They were allowing a woman to have spiritual authority within the church. They were allowing a woman to have spiritual authority in the church. Now, while some say she did not have a formal role, and that's why she was just merely among the church and wielding influence, uh, that can't be the whole of it, because she specifically calls herself not merely a prophetess, but also a teacher. She had placed herself in the position as a teacher of God. And therefore, she was sinning, and the church was sinning by allowing her to do that. Now, I don't want to pass over this point quickly, because it is something that we face in the church today. And I want to briefly consider it. Now, how was she allowed to do this? If this was such a direct contradiction to the Word of God, how was she allowed to do that? What was the mood? What was, what was the situation in the early church that could have allowed for some of these circumstances or that could have, in their mind, at least tried to serve as a justification for allowing her to wield what she was wielding in the church? Well, let me just give a brief overview. Certainly, we're not, this isn't a whole message on this, but I want to give a brief overview of this. There is out throughout the history of God's people his working that allowed women to hold certain positions of prophecy or to give certain prophecy among the people of God. Some examples of that are Miriam who led the women in worship in Exodus 15:20 when they were delivered out of the land of Israel. She led and other women uh, led other women to worship the God of Israel who had delivered them. He had given to her a gift of prophecy. She was recognized as such. And that gift was essentially, essentially this, the ability to speak forth God's truth. However, we must note this office was even within Israel, distinct from the office of teaching, and it was not among the congregation of the people of God. The office of teaching was exclusively given to the priest, Malachi 2, 6-7. You can look it up. And also her ministry was exclusively attached to women. What about Deborah? Deborah was a prophetess sought out by Barak in the book of Judges. But it was a rebuke to the nation of Israel because of her low estate, their low estate spiritually. As a matter of fact, let me just remind you of this. In the book of Judges chapter 4, which is an account of the downward spiraling nature 
of Israel who did what was right in their own eyes ends on an abysmal note. It says of chapter 4 when it gives the account of Barak being called as a judge to Israel that he went and he sought out Deborah. It says in verse 4, now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of uh, an Israelite was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel came to her for judgment. Now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam of Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor, and take with you ten thousand men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun, and I will draw out to you Sisera, this is God speaking, the commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. Barak then asked her to go with her, and she says, I will surely go with you. In verse 9, nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. And in saying so, it was a rebuke of God against the nation of Israel to say that it should not be the place of the woman to be the vehicle for the word of God. And certainly it will be a dishonor to the nation of Israel that this victory and this word from God came about through the ministry of a woman. As a matter of fact, again, when God is preparing a nation for judgment, Israel, in the first part of Isaiah, as he prepares them for the exile to come, the destruction of Jerusalem, as he's accounting their sins, he says this in Isaiah chapter 3, verse 12, in this long list of their sins, he says this, well, beginning in verse 11, Woe to the wicked, it will go badly with him, for what he deserves will be done to him. O oh, my people, listen, their oppressors are children, and women rule over them. O oh, my people, those who guide you, lead you astray, and confuse the direction of your paths. He says it's a rebuke to you that women rule over you, that your oppressors are compared to children. It is an example of God's curse and God's judgment on you as a people that they rule over you. There's also Huldah in 2 Kings chapter 22 who was also given the gift of prophecy. But again, her ministry was primarily privately to individuals. She did not have a position within the congregation. And there were women in the early church who were identified as having the gift of prophecy. In Luke chapter 2, 36, Anna is in the temple, a widow who was defined or identified as a prophetess. In Acts chapter 21, verse 9, it says that Philip had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. God did give them a particular gift for instruction and revelation, and there they are identified. It doesn't say whether that was an ongoing ministry, whether it was once. There's no indication at all. Actually, there's, no, uh, there's every reason not to think that she had, they had any ministry within the gathered church of the people of God. But they were recognized as having been given the gift of revelation from God and the ability to speak the word of God truthfully to those who came to them. To have done so in the congregation, we'll look at this in a moment, would have been against Paul's instructions. In one sense, though in a different gift, in a different context, in terms of the ability of women to teach uh, in certain contexts, we have Priscilla and Aquila. 
And Priscilla and Aquila took, are those as a couple who took Apollos aside to teach him more clearly the way of God, the way of Christ, and the way of the gospel. But in each of those mentions, Priscilla is, is uh, mentioned first, which shows that she had a certain prominence. Which means likely that when they took them into the privacy of their own home, Priscilla and Aquila, Priscilla may have had more theological knowledge and ability to communicate it and took the lead role within the home, which was according to the will of God. What about 1 Corinthians 11.5? It said that there were some, it mentions women, who are praying and prophecy, prophesying without something on their head. Well, again, in the context of 1 Corinthians 11, it is a rebuke and a correction for the rejection of God's gendered order within the church and is not condoning a public ministry or within the gathered people of God. And so praying and prophesying may have been some kind of uh, private event or outside in the public, but not within the congregation of God. But his point here is not merely that. It is the fact that it was being done without a symbol of authority. In other words, he uses here a cultural parallel to say that in that culture, to have a shaved head was a prostitute, one who was standing in rebellion to God. And those who prophesied these women were, were aligning themselves with that kind of egregious disregard of God's designed for the role of women both within culture and the church and he's actually rebuking them saying that even though some had this particular gift it was not being exercised in the way that God designed and ordered it to be exercised within public places as a matter of fact he's going to make that clear over in 1 Corinthians 14 again where he says this in verse 34 the women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. And what is the context there? The context there is essentially that as God, through the Apostle Paul, is showing how he loves order among his gathered people, and that there is a priority on a proclamation of the truth, and that the proclamation of the truth at that particular time came through the gift of prophecy among those in the congregation, that it was each prophecy then was to be examined and judged and evaluated by other prophets among the congregation. And here he's excluding women who, though they may have had this gift, from exercising that role of evaluating a word from a prophet of God among the congregation. They were not to exercise that kind of authority among the gathered people of God. And so he gives instruction. Also, in instructing the church, God made very clear that the role and the offices of authority were to be regulated to men. You're familiar, let me just remind you, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly, discreetly, showing their good works, living a life that is proper for godliness. And then he says in verse 11, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. He then goes on to 
enumerate the qualifications and the characteristics of those who hold the office of overseer or eldership or pastor within the congregation and within the church. And it is to men, men who are to rule their own households well as head of the household, men who are holding the office who are to rule well then in the church and are to be a husband of one wife which is consistent also in the book of Titus as well. So God had made clear in establishing the church and in the structure of the church, and by the time we come to Revelation, we're near the end of the first century, and these instructions had already had decades to be established and to be the established pattern within the church of God by the time of the writing of the message of Christ to the church at Thyatira. There was a clear order of God's gendered purposes for men and women within the church. And the role of leadership and the office of authority was to be regulated to men. And that is, just by way of reminder, grounded in both 1 Corinthians 11 and in 1 Timothy chapter 2 in the order of creation, not the fall, as sometimes others want to argue. So here then, Paul maintained the consistent distinction between prophesying and teaching. Prophesying is something that was given within the early church to both men and women to some degree. However, he also made the distinction that within the gathered church, women are to remain silent in the role of authority and the role of teaching and the office of elder and pastor is to be regulated and limited to men. However, in all of this, rather than diminishing the role of women, by giving these instructions and by acknowledging that some were given this gift, women are given significant honor. As a matter of fact, it is the gospel that raises the dignity and the position of women within culture and society, within the Roman and children as well. And they are shown to be equal bearers of God's image, his spirit, and heirs of eternal life, which is the point of Paul in Galatians chapter 3, 28. There's neither male nor female. He's not saying there's not a distinction. He's saying male and female, slave and freeman, barbarian, Scythian, and so far and so on, have equal footing in the gospel and access to Christ, in worship of Christ, in the knowledge of Christ. So this honor, dignity, and giftedness was to be exercised within the gendered order of God's created design within the church and within the home. So at the very beginning, the church of Thyatira was showing a willingness to compromise against this spirit by allowing this woman who was identified with Jezebel to teach and have influence within the church. And in that way, it would connect to the Old Testament is, uh, uh, Jezebel as well because Ahab was not the spiritual leader of his home. Ahab was not leading his home or his kingdom in righteousness, but he was subject to the influence of his evil wife, whom he should have never had in the first place. It's the garden repeated over and over again. And so they were sinning first by ignoring God's gendered order within the church and allowing her to teach. And this is worth noting because this is a huge issue for the church today. The ideology of feminism and its child egalitarianism has been given near free reign in much of the popular Christianity in the popular church. It has infected the church and it has dulled the gospel, which, by the way, is equally a failure of men to be men in the church, in the home, and in society. 
As a matter of fact, many times these roles are taken over by women because the men are not acting like men and fulfilling the role that God has assigned to them. And they are primarily to blame. And it's a direct attack on the goodness and the wisdom of God in creation. The most absurd examples, and I'll just mention these briefly, are seen in the extreme apostate charismatic movement. Not all charismatics. We're talking about the extreme things that you see on TBN and so forth. Paula White. Joyce Meyer. Or more conservative examples of where this line is crossed with Beth Moore. Or even more subtle, the evangelical churches that have so-called pastors of your, within the church who are women, who are sometimes that's tried to, try to get around that by saying they're pastors of women's ministry. And yet they get up and speak. There is no female pastor in Scripture and in the New Testament. It is disobedience to God's Word. And yet the cultural pressure to conform is great. In our culture... If you are to say this publicly, then you are a sexist, you are a woman hater, or even worse, the big one, you are a part of that most hated identity of patriarchal culture. And yet, that is God's design. It is to be patriarchal in the sense, not in the sinful expressions of it, but in the sense that men are to take the leadership. There is to be a masculinity about the leadership of the home and of the church, and for that matter, even culture. And yet, there's so easily, so much pressure, and the church so easily bows to the ideology of feminism. And the reality is, and again, this isn't a message on that. We've done that in the past. I just want to note, in reality, it is feminists who hate women because they hate femininity. And they certainly hate any evidence of true masculinity unless it bows to feminism, and then we have the effemination of our culture, the emasculation of a very nation and a culture. And the irony is that feminists want to be like men while proclaiming the glories of women. And they hate women by attacking the honor and privilege, one, of bearing children and saying women's rights is to kill the child in her womb so that she can have sex just like a man can without any consequences. And yet... Adam calls Eve the mother of all living things. That is a title of honor and glory and dignity and privilege and responsibility. In a similar way, egalitarianism, and egalitarianism is essentially a movement that wants to abolish any distinction between male and female and says one is the same in terms of what we can do in culture and society. So everything is open to each, that there is no gendered distinction, there is no gendered order, and there is no gendered role, either within culture, within the home, or within the church. That's essentially egalitarianism. It's all the same. It's all balanced out. And again, they hate God's created order, his goodness, and his wisdom, and they are opposed to his word at that point. And that is why, for many, Paul is a sexist, or at worst, Again, he's the product of an antiquated patriarchal society, and he needs to be silenced in his teaching about women. So here it is. That kind of temptation is what Thyatira, at the very beginning, fell into. They were disregarding this in the church. They were disregarding the instruction. They were disregarding the pattern of God, not only for truth, but also for the ordered, the gendered, ordered design within the church 
And so you have a woman who is standing among God's people, who is taking a specific role as a spokesman for God, and who is teaching, and who is wielding influence, and nobody is saying anything. They're simply allowing it. And letting the influence spread and the corruption spread throughout the church. And Christ says, no, no, that's wrong and it's sin. Secondly then, they were allowing false teaching and sinful lifestyles to abide among them. Look at her teaching. Not only was she given that position, it says that she is leading them astray. My slaves to commit acts of immorality... And to eat things sacrificed to idols. Poneo, it's the it's a verb here, commit acts of immorality. Some versions of your translation say sexual immorality. That's how it's usually understood. Some say just acts of immorality because they want to relegate both uses of that term to spiritual unfaithfulness rather than to actual acts of sexual sin. However, it's best to take the word here in its first use as referring as well to immoral physical activities as well as spiritual unfaithfulness in eating things sacrificed to idols. What's going on? Let me note these briefly. As noted previously and already I mentioned earlier, that these trade guilds were often associated with a particular god and participation in the guild, which importantly for their context, was necessarily necessary both for its social importance and its economic opportunity that it provided. And so to reject the practice of these guilds was essentially to cut yourself off economically or socially from your culture and therefore suffer the consequences of that. So it was a significant issue. It plagued the conscience of many there, and it forced a decision on the church. And apparently, her teaching, while there's not a whole lot of historical information on her, through the context here, her teaching and her prophesying included encouraging some among the church to participate in the idolatrous festivities and the immoralities of these guilds. It was very common for them to have a meal, a meal that was directly connected to the worship of that idol. At the end of these meals and these feasts, it was very common that sexual activity would take place. And she's saying, that's okay. For this reason, some want to associate her teaching with the Nicolaitans, already mentioned at the church of Ephesus, and then again at the church of Pergamum, and the teaching of Balaam, if you remember, we looked at that then, which in 2 Peter and in Jude both mentions that it is turning the grace of God into licentiousness and involves immoral practices, and so on. And so some want to associate it with that. It's, it's, it's very possible that there were elements of that. Some want to associate it with what was at this time beginning to form more and more and would flower and blossom in the second century of Gnosticism, which taught many things, but there was a basic dichotomy within Gnosticism of flesh and of spirit, and that went in two different directions, either of licentiousness or of asceticism. Very often in the case of licentiousness in which it said, hey, it doesn't really matter what we do with the flesh. You know, it's our spirit that matters. So therefore, you do immorality, you go worship in temples, whatever. It doesn't matter. Your spirit's fine. It's hard to say exactly what it is, but really, knowing the influence isn't as important as knowing the fruit of it. And it is that she was causing them to sin. She was causing many to turn their back on the gospel of Christ and faithfulness. And this was an issue, and we don't want to minimize it. It's not something immediately in the same way, in exactly the same form, though it does definitely in its essence, face us today. 
To be a business person, you don't have to go worship in the temple of whatever. But we're not really so separated. But let me just give an example in this context and then we'll move forward. Again, how the Christians and how the church was to participate in the culture around them was a continual issue. And because of the prevalence of idolatry, that really became the connection point, the point where the decision had to be made and discernment had to be exercised. How do we remain faithful to Christ and live within the culture that we were placed? And so Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 says this in addressing the issue of the church and food sacrificed to idols. He says in chapter 8, he says this, there's no such thing as an idol and that that there is no God but one. For us, he says in verse 6, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things. In other words, he's saying the idol is nothing, the meat that was given to it is nothing. But here, he's almost certainly referring to the meat that was sold in the marketplace, meat that was offered to idol at some point earlier while it was still edible it was then taken to the marketplace and it was sold and he was saying that you can eat it there's no problem with that because an idol is nothing it's just a piece of meat it was not sin because buying meat in the marketplace did not have and understand a direct association with the temple worship and the idolatry which was the original purpose of those who sold it But for the Christian buying it, there was no direct connection. There was no direct association. So he says it doesn't really matter. In another sense, however, there were occasions when eating the meat in the context of a meal that was directly related to the worship of the idol, that was sin. And so Paul then rebukes them in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, says this, you can't share in the the body of Christ and in the blood of Christ and partake of the sacrifices of those who eat meals in worship at pagan altars. Look at the nation of Israel, he says, are not all those who eat the sacrifices share in the altars? What do I mean? That anything sacrificed to an idol is anything? He says, no, but I say that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to be sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. In other words, he's saying, when you gather as a church and the symbol of your unity and your commitment to Christ is sharing in the Lord's Supper, and then you go in a similar context and a similar meal but in a pagan temple and you do the same those things are opposed to one another you can't do that you're becoming a participator in that pagan worship and you can't mix the two things so what made the issue sin was both its context and its connection to the worship of the idol so that was the situation they were dealing with in Thyatira is when they would participate in these guild celebrations and acts of worship, they were actually participating in eating these meals that were directly associated with the worship of that idol and that deity. And Jezebel was among them saying, that's okay, don't worry about it. Don't don't sacrifice your social standing. Don't sacrifice your economic opportunity. Don't sacrifice these things. It doesn't matter, you're okay. And so many were being influenced by this. And she was saying as a prophetess that she has a word of God that affirms this. She has a word from the risen Lord that affirms that this is okay. We'll look at this next week. The deep things of Satan. She's uh, 
She's supposedly saying these are, this is a deeper knowledge. This is a more mature knowledge. This is a fuller revelation of the Spirit than what you may have heard or others are telling you. And so it's okay. It's okay. And again, the risen Christ says, no. No, it's not okay. And you shouldn't be tolerating this. And you should not be tolerating her. You are disregarding the worship of Christ. And you are rejecting the knowledge of Christ that has been handed down to you. And you are sinning. You're sinning. Now I want to note just a few observations here. And then we're going to pick this up next week. But a few observations in their sin of tolerating this woman Jezebel. One, Satan's primary work is in deception, spiritual deception. And we have to really own that. And the deception is this. Many ways that you could approach this. But essentially the deception is this. Sin is a better way to go than the way of Christ. Sin is a better way to go. There's less problems. There's more opportunity. There's greater pleasure. The way of Christ is hard. It brings opposition. It brings persecution. It brings rejection. Surely, certainly there can be some compromise. Certainly there can be some middle ground. Let's not go too overboard with this righteousness, holiness thing. Certainly the culture can have some sway over us. That's always a temptation. And whatever surface credence she gave or anybody who falls in her ilk, her spiritual ilk, she gave to Scripture or an orthodox view of the gospel, she was a wolf in sheep's clothing. And this kind of temptation is the hallmark of the kingdom of the Antichrist and the spirit of Antichrist. And we see it throughout Revelation. It's Satan's hallmark. Let me just remind you of a few passages. Revelation 12.9, he's described in this way. The great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives, that's our word, the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. In Revelation chapter 23, he's described in this way. As, he was, as he's being thrown into the abyss at the return of Christ, it says, and he threw him into the abyss, the angel did in order of Christ, from the order of Christ. And he shut it and he sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. In verse 8, he is going to come up at the end of the thousand years to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth and gathering them for war. In verse 10, he's described as this, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. It's the ministry of the false prophet. Revelation chapter 13. The false prophet is he who deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound and the sword and who has come to life. In chapter 19 verse 20 he's again described. In that way, and the beast was seized, this is at the return of Christ, with him, the false prophet who performed the signs in the presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image and these were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. 
the mark of the evil city of Babylon, the very capital city of the kingdom of Antichrist, is described in this way. And the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer. The voice of the bridegroom and the bride will not be heard in you any longer. For your merchants were the great men of the earth because of all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of the prophets, true prophets, and of the saints, and all who had been slain on the earth. It's deception. It's deception. That's the trade of Satan. That's the trade of the demonic realm, is to confuse things, to compromise truth, to lead toward what seems like an easier way, but in the end, it leads to death. And he does so, and here's what we as Christians need to understand. He does so very often with a nice, thick, well-worn Bible in his hand. With a Bible in his hand. Not with horns, not with a pitchfork, not with that hideous creature that Satan is just worship and they want in the Capitol building and other places of some. With a Bible, with a smile, and with an expensive suit. And so Paul says of these false apostles who had come into Corinth, he describes them in exactly that way. He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. They're not coming as messengers of Satan. They're coming as apostles of Christ. They're saying, I represent Christ. I represent the risen Lord. I represent the kingdom of God. I represent the truth of God. I myself am an apostle of God. I am a messenger of God. Listen to me. That's how they come among the church. And he says, verse 14, no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds and their teaching. And so he warns the church. Sometimes people will say it was a, it was a, good, it was a good church or it was a good service because he preached out of the Bible. That's not the issue. Satan loves to preach out of the Bible and then twist it so that it means something else than what it actually says. He loves to quote scripture to the Son of God to get him to forsake the ministry for which he was called. Doesn't God say? He loves scripture because he loves to abuse it and he loves to twist it to his own purposes. And so the issue is not merely whether it's out of the Bible, but is it speaking the truth from the Bible? Is it accurate? Is it being handled accurately as the word of truth and applied accurately to the people of God in such a way that it can lead to the salvation of those who are outside and the sanctification of those who are inside the church? That is the purpose of the word. That is the purpose of the spirit. That is God's purposes in this world. To bring home his elect through the saving knowledge of the gospel of Christ through scripture and then to sanctify his people by the spirit working through the word among the body making them more like Christ until they reach their final destination. And Satan hates both of those things. Well, there's more to say, but we'll pick it up there next week. The point here is to say that the church needs to be discerning. The church needs to be aware that there are elements of culture that are benign, 
that are simply a part of the diversity of human nature that have no bearing on our spiritual lives. And then there are aspects of the culture that are very much the fruit of an ideology that stands in opposition to the truth of God's word that needs to be recognized. And it takes discernment. And discernment requires a knowledge of Scripture. And that kind of knowledge of Scripture requires a genuine love for Christ and desire to follow Him. And a desire to follow Him no matter what the church calls you and no matter what they mock you. Did they not do the same to Christ? And did not Paul say when he took his message to Corinth that to the Greeks it's foolishness and to the Jews it's a stumbling block? And yet, I preach Christ crucified. So that the power of God and the power of salvation would not rest on any kind of eloquence or education or intellect of man, but it would rest on the power of God working through his spirit faithfully preached that, that inspires or that enables the faithful preaching of his word. And so here it is at Thyatira. They were allowing this sin to be there and Christ is calling them to an account. And then we'll look at that again next week. May we pray and ask that God would keep us faithful to the truth. Well, with that being said, let me pray and then I want to call up some who we want to recognize as we always have a, a joy doing as members of our local congregation. But let me pray first and then I'll call them up. Father, thank you for your word. Help us to be faithful to it, Lord. And we know that the ministry you've called us to is to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, to grow in our love for you and our obedience to you, to, to grow in our unity as a, a body. But we know that at times that requires dealing with sin and calling things what they are, not out of harshness, but out of a love for your glory, out of a love for your people. Because the only thing that brings bad to your people is sin. And error. And so we love you and we love your church and we love the world when we are committed to the truth and the glory of Christ. Because it is through that that you work, that you protect, you preserve, you save, and again you grow into maturity, your body and your church. And so help us to grasp that Holy Spirit and to be faithful to it in our own lives and as your people. And these things we ask in your name, Jesus. Amen.